Hello and welcome to the KE Report. I'm your host, Shad Markwitz, and I'm speaking today with Doc Jones, a very prolific contributor over at CEO.ca, also on Twitter and X. And we always love having you on the show, Doc Jones, because you look at the whole lay of the land in the commodity sector and you rotate from different commodities to other commodities based on the the macro environment you see. And then you take Mm -hmm. positions in the companies and you're not really selling a newsletter. You're not sponsored by any company. You're not taking money from any company. You're just sharing your thoughts on the market. And we sure appreciate you taking some time to peel back the layers in the resource stock investing sphere. And we were talking offline a little bit that we wanted to kick things off today in this discussion with the critical mineral space, because it got a lot of airtime over the last couple of years. And you see big moves in the industry, but not big moves in a lot of the stocks, unfortunately. So when you look at the critical minerals, there's a lot to pick from from lithium and cobalt to copper to nickel. But I think you wanted to kick things off with nickel because that's one that really has people's attention right now. Yeah. Hi, Shad. Thanks for having me on. Yes, nickel. The thing that I'm looking at is supply destruction. We're looking at mine closures globally, the uh, higher cost producers, for example, in in New Caledonia, Trafikura is shutting down a mine there. Same with Glencore in Australia, Wailu Metals is shutting their Western Australian nickel mines. BHP is shutting down a nickel processing plant. Then we have Indonesia, which accounts for about 40% of the global nickel production. Uh, Secretary General of Indonesian Nickel Miners Association came out and has made a couple really interesting statements. One, that he's proposing a moratorium on new nickel smelters in uh, Indonesia. And as you remember, Indonesia has banned the export of ore. They want to produce the, the, the finished product of nickel and export that to the world. And the reason why they don't want any more smelters is because then they can limit production and keep that resource which they have, which is a finite resource, and extend it past basically a decade. Because right now, their total reserves that they have there are approximately 21 million tons of nickel. They produce about 1.7 million tons. So that's a 12 years of reserves. After that, that's it. It's done. And you're talking about a producer that is accounting for over 40% of the current production of nickel globally, satisfying 40% of demand. And that demand is growing. We have all these new battery plants that need their first fill of nickel. And the incremental demand that is coming from uh, just economic growth, from the steel industry, as well as the, uh, as, a, as a new demand pull in the electrification of the world. As well, you've got like this yesterday or the day before, we had uh, Nornickel in uh, Russia announcing that they're uh, cutting production by an additional 5%. It was cut 5% last year, another 5%. They account for about 6% of the total global production. So you have all this supply destruction going on. And currently, the price is about $15,000 a ton. So Indonesia has said, at this price, we don't make money. That's a really good place to be as an investor. And we're seeing these deals getting done where people look at the nickel price and they go, it's down from 15 last year to seven and change a pound. And, and Indonesia is going to flood the market. And then you see deals like Canada and Nickel doing a, a big deal, getting another strategic investor, as well as selling the option to fund $100 million of their project. FPX Nickel getting yet another strategic investor in there. Uh, so there's there's a lot of money that's coming into the nickel sector. And it's also, those projects are those large bulk tonnage ones that, that they don't work really unless nickel is around at least $9 a pound. And then they generate low teen IRRs, which is 
okay for them because they're also a production life of multiple decades. So as an OEM or as a major mining company, you're probably looking at the macro picture and saying to yourself, a producer that produces 40% of the current nickel for the market and a market that is growing pretty robustly over the next decade or two will be exhausted and out of the market 10, 12 years from now. So they're looking at these projects and going, I will put some money in, into this project, buy the offtake, buy, buy at the asset level as well as the equity, knowing that the price of nickel has to go up and it will be sustained up because you're going to be pulling out of the market 40% of the current supply a decade from now. And nickel is essential, like the steel industry. It's used in, in, in so many things. And then the electric, uh, electrification, right? So it, it's really interesting to see that retail investors are, are shunning nickel where the smart money, if you want to call it smart money, you've got major mining companies, OEMs, investing in these large bulk tonnage projects here in Canada and on ICA's jurisdiction. Even though on paper today, they would not be profitable, but the price will stay this price. I see nickel probably getting up to around $9, $10 a pound within a year and then stabilizing and, and you know, over the next decade, we'll probably see nickel between 10 to $15 a pound going forward. So it's a really exciting time. And, and there's proof of this concept. If you look in the junior mining sector, there's uh, NICAN. It's a small nickel junior. I'm, I'm an investor in it. And they, they announced this really nice drill hole the other day. And the stock went up 200%. Then it came down. And then they announced a financing today. And on the back of this financing, the stock is up about 50% today above the financing price. And it's been a long time since I've seen financings announced and then a stock actually rallies on it. And it's also a financing with no warrant. So it's very fascinating to see, see that happening. Yes, so supply destruction coupled with growing demand, coupled with a major producer, the number one producer whose reserve life has a reserve life of only 12 years at a, if you keep current demand flat, which it's not, it's going to grow incrementally every year. Can you imagine in the oil market, if we had a country that was producing 40 or 50% of the world's oil and, and everyone knew that they would run out in 10 years? Can you imagine the chaos in the market there? Uh, and I think, I, I think it won't be long before everyone starts figuring this out, especially retail investors. Now, it doesn't mean any, every nickel company is going to do well. There's this thing where people say, well, if only generalists come in, we'll do fine. I, I, that is something that, 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 that I, I just do not, doesn't sit well with me because you're basically saying stupid money come in and then I'll make money. So you have to be very selective in what you invest in. Yeah, that would be my advice. Well, just following up on that point, Doc Jones, when you think about some of these critical minerals where that have obvious fundamental trajectories higher, something like nickel, but we could say the same thing about copper and kind of talk about them. They're mm -hmm. different, but but it's similar in the sense that it's something that's going to happen and they need to have higher prices and that would incentivize the smaller companies to get a bid. When you're investing in these, are you looking at them with a certain time horizon because people have been table pounding bullish on copper for years, but a lot of the juniors haven't gotten lift off and you could make the same point about nickel, the juniors, you know, some of the larger base metal conglomerates are doing okay, but some of the juniors really haven't gotten giant momentum going yet. So how do you look at time frame on these and how do you look at positioning in these as far as your portfolio for the demand thesis you see playing out? Well, in my portfolio, for example, 
there's nickel exploration, which is very high risk, which could be 10x or zero, right? Exploration is very risky. So, so the my allocation there would be small compared to the whole. I may only put up to three, four percent of my total capital in a story like that. Whereas a developer that has a proved resource that has economics on it or, or prospective economics that are reasonable, such as magnet mining, where I can say they have 50 million tons at this grade, they're located in this jurisdiction, the infrastructure is there, the permitting is there. And once they go into production, they will likely get rewrite to an, uh, an EBITDA or a net asset value. So something like that, I'm more comfortable putting a larger portion of my capital in. And again, you know, the type of investor I am, I, I keep a portfolio of 10 to 20 companies tops, never more than that. So my individual allocations in something that I have high conviction to will be higher than your average person. I'm comfortable putting 20, 25 percent of my capital into a company if I feel that it has the merits where I'm going to earn a very, very good return over, over time. Something like an explorer developer like uh, Magnum Mining, my time horizon is much more extended because I know they're going into production. They're going to do that. Will it take a few years for me to get the re-rate I want? That's fine. I'm comfortable with that because they're going to be generating cash flow and building value that way. Whereas an exploration company, my whole time is really dependent on every news release that comes out, whether or not it breaks my thesis. So you have to have a thesis going in. You know, like if you have a thesis where they're drilling out this deposit and it it needs to be, you know, whatever, 20 million tons at at least 2% nickel equivalent and it's looking more like, you know, 5 million tons at 1%, then that's when I have to cut, right? Whether I'm in the black or in the red, the thesis is broken, then I have to take my money off the table. And that's the way it is with exploration companies, right? You go in there with a thesis and every data point either supports or destroys that thesis. And that's why smaller positions are better for me in that regard, because trying to exit a company, if you have a million shares or two million shares of a junior that trades at 20 cents, that only does a few hundred thousand shares a day, if the thesis gets broken by the time I get out, chances are that stock has, by the time my last share is sold, it's probably down 30, 40% from when I first started to exit that position. So yeah, that, that's how I, how I invest. Uh, depending on whether it's a major, a mid-tier producer, a developer, or an exploration company. But my caveat, also uh, something else you said earlier, was that if you look at the major mining companies, they're all doing really well as far as their share prices. They're, they're, they're well off their bottoms. In some cases, they're 10, 15% off their, their uh, 52-week highs. So I, I think the large institutions and the large pools of money are seeing what we just discussed as far as the rebound in nickel prices. Iron ore has done really well. And if iron ore demand is high, that's going to absorb a lot of nickel as well. And zinc, uh, you know, for galvanizing and things like that. So I think the money will flow into to the developers and the juniors and it's on its way because much in the gold sector, you usually see the majors rally first and then you you go down that final tier of exploration company. Yeah, we've kind of seen the same thing in copper, and I want to get into copper next just as another critical mineral that I know that you also follow and have some positions that have exposure to copper. But it's the same pattern, Doc Jones, where we see if you look at COPEX, COPX, it's an ETF that has a lot of the big producers mm -hmm. in it. And if you pull up a five-year chart on it, it's 
had a big rally a couple of years ago, but held on to most of those gains and some individual copper producers are still trading very close to their highs. If you know, maybe they're a little off from it, but they're doing well. You look at copper juniors, it's the same thing with the nickel. So a lot of the polymetallic base metal producers, they're doing just fine. It's the developers and the explorers that maybe haven't gotten that love yet. How are you seeing the copper space? And if I could pin you down, are you more excited about copper or nickel for this year? Uh, I'll answer the last question first. I'm more excited about nickel because nickel, the current price per pound is unsustainable in my opinion, based on the work that I've done. So if we see a 30, 40% rise in the nickel price, that's going to translate into a pretty substantial gains, I believe, in the companies that actually have the, the pounds in the ground and the economics to support and investment in. As far as copper, you know, it, it's a case by case, you know, there's a lot of copper juniors that I follow and, and the few that I'm invested in, there's Intrepid, which is a um, an exploration company that's in Arizona and they picked up a nice land package that was, they consolidated, that was fragmented. And they did a, uh, a capital raise about a month ago and their share price has doubled since then, even though they raised money and had a, had a warrant attached to it. So there is an appetite for that. Same thing with Sendero Resources in the Vicuna District. They're trading well above their uh, IPO price as well. So I think there's an appetite for new stories or stories that had been public because as, as in junior mining, the majority of these projects are never going to go anywhere. So there are companies that have projects that have been around for a decade or so, and they didn't survive in the last cycle. And the chances are they will never be in production. So, yeah, you know, it's everyone's looking for, especially in, in the juniors, you're looking for that new discovery. An area that perhaps ha hasn't had this the same drilling density or exploration, and you have the ability for a company goes in there and grabs this ground or consolidates an area that's never been consolidated, and they look at it from a different point of view or applying modern geophysics and exploration techniques to potentially prove up something, whereas uh, some of the older harder plays that, that have been drilled for two decades off and on, they're, they're just not going to go anywhere, right? It's really a case by case because in the end, junior mining is very, very risky and 99% of these companies fail. But the reason why people invest in this sector is because it's one of the few places where when it does work out, you can make 10, 20, 50, 100x with a discovery, right? Well, let's take that idea of when it does work out, you can make those multi-bagger returns and look at also the precious metal sector. Now you had for a while when we were talking, been vocally waiting on the sidelines, watching for mm -hmm. a position in the gold silver space that looked like a better setup to you. And then recently, like let's say over the last six months to a year, I've noticed you've been getting a little bit more active in the precious metals again. That's another sector, Doc Jones, where people are waiting for there to be this re-rating because there's a pretty big disconnect in where the gold price is and let's say the gold stocks are. And even the, the silver stocks are down in the basement, you know, getting beat up and bloodied on a daily basis. So when you look at the precious metals equities, how are you positioning? What has your attention? What's on your radar? Well, right now, you know, I'm very, very much involved in, in a handful of gold junior companies that have recently made a discovery or have large deposits already delineated and they're just not getting love from the market. That could be because of the jurisdiction or just just unknown. Like there's 
my gold that I'm involved with, they're in Guyana. They have a project there as a brownfield site, and they've got 3.7 million ounces that have been delineated, most of which in the indicated category. And it's a combination of about 1.7 million ounces in an open pit and, and the rest in underground. And they've been doing a lot of drilling in the last year, and they're going to be updating the resource and putting out a PEA. And they're valued at know, four or five, five dollars an ounce in the ground. And I've I've talked to Elaine, the the CEO there, and we've had numerous conversations. And this mine, when it was originally in production, produced and generated a nice profit when gold was four hundred dollars. Now the jurisdiction, there's been some rumbling. Venezuela trying to take over that portions of this country, but. I don't think that's going to happen because you've got those major oil discoveries off the coast and you've got major oil companies and governments in the United States uh, ensuring that nothing like that is going to happen. And it's just a really nice, clean story. The metallurgy is already done. The infrastructure is, you know, some of it is already in place. And I think once they put out the PEA and people can see the actual economics on this, and with the updated resource, we'll probably push this. The intention is to push this above 5 million ounces. And then, yeah, it, it, it'll make money all day long. So something like that, I'm happy to be a shareholder. And because I'm buying ounces below the cost, the exploration cost of finding those ounces at, at a global level for an open pit, you know, uh, there's only a few other operators that come close to their same same cost uh, of finding ounces, which is uh, Banyan Gold. Uh, Terra has done a fantastic job up there discovering ounces, adding them to the books at about two, three dollars an ounce. It's the same situation here, except this is in Guyana. And I'm also a shareholder of Banyan as well for that reason, because it's such a well-run company and they have a, a really strong resource. Yeah, so that, that, that's one that I'm involved with. There's also in Brazil, Lavarus Gold. They made that wonderful discovery uh, where they had that drill hole of like 300 meters at a little over a, a gram per ton. And that potentially has a lot of scale to it, but it's, it's still in the show me phase. Uh, we're waiting on assays there. And I came into that story after, right after the discovery hole for that reason, because it looks like it has the potential to be something quite remarkable where they could delineate three, four million ounces in a jurisdiction where you can build a gold mine as well as at, at a low cost uh, ASIC once it is developed. So yeah, that's, that's, that's I'm looking at, at gold and, and I don't see gold rallying heavily this year, but I see gold staying between 2000 and maybe get up to 2200 year end, depending on rate cuts and, and a number of other factors. But even at, if gold goes down to 1800, these companies that I've, I've invested in, they will make good money at 1800 in a production scenario. I generally won't be involved in a developer exploration company unless their ounces work at $1,600 as a downside case. So, yeah, that's where I'm sitting with gold investments currently. Okay, and looking at projects that have some downside protection in case there is a pullback, but also have the upside torque if we do see the move higher that so many are banking on in the years to come. So you got basically a defensive and offensive situation because the project has merit. One other sector I want to get your quick thoughts on, because I know you've been following it for decades, and that is the oil and gas sector, the energy space. 
I guess, round us out with your thoughts on the energy sector, how you're looking at the equities in the energy sector, any thoughts on oil and gas stocks? Yeah, I think oil and gas in Canada still offers one of the best values for any investor. You, you get dividend yields at around 10%. So you're getting a little over two times the, the short-term treasury and two and a half times the 10-year. And particularly in Canada, because we have that new pipeline that's uh, going in and being started and starting to fill that will bring uh, heavy crude from Canada down to the United States. So the differential against Western crude, which used to get a discount of 12 to 16 to $20 at time, is compressed to about $9 today. So that's really positive for anyone producing heavy crude in Canada. As well, we've got the export terminals being built on the West Coast to bring uh, natural gas out of Canada and export it to the, the global market, which also will bring up the price of natural gas in Canada. Like it's, it's such a great setup because also these companies have really fortified their balance sheets. They're living within their cash flow, doing buybacks and paying dividends. And yeah, like uh, it's boring, boring as hell being in oil and gas, but, but the benefits are, are fantastic. Like these companies are trading at historic lows to uh, free cash flow to net asset value. Often you are, you're buying the true producing assets at a discount and getting all the uh, P2 reserves, the P3 reserves, and the infrastructure for free, which is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, I, I really love the Canadian oil and gas sector for that. And also, if you're a Canadian, you get a thing called uh, eligible dividends, which means that your dividends received if you're uh, a Canadian citizen living in Canada, if you're getting like $250,000 a year in dividends, the tax rate on that first $250,000, if that's your only source of income, is about 8% because it, it's eligible dividends. You get special treat, treatment from, from the government as well. And we're seeing some consolidation in Canada, and I think we'll see even more consolidation as time goes by, especially the companies that have assets in the deep basin uh, in Alberta, where, you know, those wells, you drill a well there, and they just produce, 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 as far as a gas well. And the decline rates are very shallow, so they don't have to uh, spend a lot of capital to, to keep flow rates flat, so that frees them up more dividends, buybacks, or acquisitions. Yeah, it's really fantastic. Like I have a whole separate portfolio of just those, uh, which I just add to incrementally as, as dividends come in. And I see the oil price. Well, also, if you look at the United States, like I love the United States. I, I made a lot of money investing in oil and gas there for well over a decade when I, when I used to live down there. And uh, we're seeing the Marcellus shell is peaking. The Marcellus, like shale gas, have, Accounts for about 80% of natural gas production in the United States, and the Marcellus is the largest contributor. And it's at the point now where they're drilling the most amount of wells they've ever drilled, and you're getting production is rolling over and starting to fall off. So you're getting peak production there. Eagleford, same thing as far as the oil gas window, where you're seeing that the um, EURs, the, the estimated ultimate recoveries per well, is now decreasing. And they are declining faster. The decline rates were just a little bit of data throughout there. The average decline rate before for well in Eagleford was about 28%. Now it's up to 35%, as well as the ultimated estimate recovery is going down because they're moving from the tier one locations to the tier two, two, three, where the rock isn't as porous, isn't as productive. 
And that's to be expected because we've been drilling out these plays for a very long time now. The Permian Basin, too, is rolling over. And, you know, there's been a big boost of production. Well, so we thought, but they did a revision or revising oil production in the United States down by 500,000 barrels. So we really didn't hit an all-time high, but that was on these extremely long laterals. So the backdrop is, is fantastic for oil and gas. Everyone thinks of it as a, as a dirty business, but it's really provided the world that we live in now. You know, and we're seeing governments around the world rolling back their targets for uh, phasing out internal combustion engines and rolling back all that green push because it is impossible to do so. And we're actually seeing countries in the UK where they're making natural gas part of a, now a transition fuel, you know, calling it green, uh, which is necessary. You know, the world runs on, on cheap, affordable energy and that's oil and gas. At this point, so I think it, it, it's, a, it's a great opportunity for investors to fund a basket of these oil and gas companies, just buy them, collect the dividends and just walk away and just leave it for a decade. And you'll probably be very happy. Well, we'll wrap it up there, Doc Jones. That's a good kind of bigger picture thought on where the oil and gas sector is going longer term and even in the near term and some great ways to pick up some nice dividends and some of the solid players but still some opportunities for consolidation in that space as well. So we covered a lot here today for investors, yeah. everything from nickel and copper to gold and oil and that gas. So hopefully some people got some value from the discussion here today. Definitely check out the link below. It takes you over to the CEO page where Doc Jones likes to weigh in on different companies he follows or different sectors. And as always, just always great having you on the KE report and looking forward to our next conversation. Well, thanks, Chad. I appreciate it. And again, just so everyone is clear, uh, nobody pays me to do this. I'm just a retired investor who uh, is sharing my, my points of view. And any company I talk about, chances are I own it. I think I disclosed every when we talked about it that I own them all. I think every, every company we talked about today, I probably have an investment in. And as well, remember, this is a very, very risky sector and you have to do your homework and don't invest in anything you don't understand.